I think recognizing that limits are constructs and that you should never accept someone else's arbitrary definition of what's possible. I don't think my dad doubted for a second that I could handle it. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. Greetings, everyone. I'm Renee Cordes with the Maine Biz Podcast team. We're joined today by Katie Kroll, a development coach with the Portland Sea Dogs, the AA affiliate of the Boston Red Sox. She's the first female coach with the Sea Dogs since the team was founded in 1994, hired by the Red Sox in January 2022. You'll hear about Katie's deep ties to baseball and about her lofty professional aspirations to go even further in a sport she's loved since childhood. Let's play ball. Katie, welcome to the show. So, so Katie, you are a, a fellow native of the Chicago area. Tell us a bit about where, where you grew up. Definitely, Renee. Thanks so much for having me. I grew up in Park Ridge, which is a suburb on the northwest side of the city. I have two parents, Joan and Daryl, who are also from Chicago, and then a twin sister, Annie, and went pretty close to home for college, graduated from Northwestern in 2018. Woohoo! Well, I've here, as you know. Right. Go Cats. <laughs> so so when you were growing up, what was family life like in your house? My parents are incredibly supportive. So whether it was our academic pursuits, sports, they had our backs always. And I think that allowed Annie and I to develop a lot of intrinsic motivation and love for the things that we pursued. So whether it was my dad coaching our softball teams and letting me create and set the lineup every day or our mom taking us out of school in order to go to Cubs or White Sox games. I think they really gave us, you know, roots to grow and wings to fly, which is something that I think has been really formative for both of us in our careers. And what did your parents do for a living? My mom used to be on TV in Chicago, which is part of the reason why Annie's followed in her footsteps now after a year in Green Bay covering the Packers as an anchor and a sports reporter. And my dad has always worked in tech. So he's currently working for Panasonic. And gosh, I think he's been there for almost a decade now. Great. So um, obviously sports play, played a role in, in your life from, from an early age. Tell us about your some of your first baseball memories. Oh, gosh, Renee, when I was really <laughs> little, I couldn't even sit through an entire inning. I had such a short attention span <laughs> that we would go to Cubs games. You know, we would get out there, have everything set up. And then after three outs, I just I was ready to get back in the car. So thankfully that changed over. You were so what? Basically, yeah, I think <laughs> I had to develop an appreciation for the game and I, I learned to love it, obviously. But at the time, I think my nickname when I was growing up was short attention span theater. <laughs> so in terms of baseball, my godfather was the bullpen coach of the Twins for 32 years. And he was really traditional. He even said that the damn spreadsheets are ruining the game, which is kind of <laughs> ironic that I now help put together and disseminate those damn spreadsheets. But I think from him, I really learned the more qualitative and interpersonal skills that come from being and working in baseball. So we would go and visit him all the time in Minneapolis. My mom was on the board of the White Sox for about 10 years. So I, I knew from her and from the binders that she would bring home from her meetings that you had to consider how much it cost to have hot water at the ballpark 
or how you were going to price season tickets for the upcoming year. So I think from a lot of that, I knew early on that you could be part of a team, even if you weren't the shortstop for the Yankees. And you certainly have come a long way from the time I believe you were coaching in softball, which I think thanks to your father. So tell us right. about from, that. I was about seven or eight years old. And so he would let me set the lineup. And at the time, there's a lot of um, a lot of change that was happening in the games. This would have been like 2003, 2004. And even though I hadn't run Moneyball yet, or I wouldn't say that I was deep in the realms of data analysis for sports. It just always made sense to me that you would slot your best hitters at the top of the lineup. Whereas historically in baseball, the philosophy was always cluster them three, four, five. But I knew that the more times we could churn through the lineup, and again, this was peewee girls softball, so not necessarily the most formal or well-trained. <laughs> I just knew the more we could get runners across and make sure that they were in scoring position and in places to succeed that was going to be advantageous to us. So it ended up working out pretty well and definitely like my first exposure to roster construction. And and what made your dad think that you would make a, a good coach, you know, at the the ripe age of, of seven? That's the thing, like I said, Renee, about my parents, like they've always had an unshakable belief in us. So like we have never been told our entire lives, you can't do this. And I think recognizing that limits are constructs and that you should never accept someone else's arbitrary definition of what's possible. I don't think my dad doubted for a second that I could handle it. And how about you? Did you fit into that role easily? What were what was the seven-year-old's Katie like as a coach? <laughs> <laughs> well, probably I honestly have this, some of the same tendencies that I do now as a coach. I think it's important to be supportive, but also not scared to offer critical feedback because I think if you do have someone's best interests at heart, you're not necessarily going to sugarcoat things. And especially in professional baseball, where it's an environment where people are very high performing, you can be earning astronomical amounts of money as you ascend up the levels and making sure that you're not surrounded by yes people and people who really want you to succeed. And sometimes in order to do that, you need to develop and you need to get better in certain areas. So I think it's weaving that line and making sure that you're keeping the macro level goals in perspective, but also treating the person as if, you know, they deserve your respect and they deserve to be spoken to as if they're any other individual, regardless of the salary that they're earning. So you already referenced the book Moneyball, Michael Lewis's book about analytics and baseball. I think you read it as a teenager, age 13. Tell us about the impression that book made on you. And maybe for people who aren't familiar with it, just a brief synopsis. Absolutely. Moneyball shifted the paradigm, not only for me, but I think for a lot of people in sports, recognizing that there were different ways to evaluate players in the game and then also how to put together a team. So read it when I was in seventh grade in the back of my homeroom. And it really, um, you know, it was a, a moment where the light bulb went off, where I realized that there was an alternative way to look at a sport that I had grown up watching and I had grown up loving. And I think it was really a critical juncture for me to be able to dive into this world and be really receptive to the new pieces of information that were coming and recognize that convention could be challenged and that there were orthodoxies such as evaluating a pitcher based on his win-loss record that maybe weren't the most, the most beneficial in order to truly capture ability. And when you read that book, did you see yourself working in baseball sometime in the yes, future? Absolutely. That book really allowed me to think in that path, you know, regardless of my gender, regardless of my age, that someday I could, if I structured my career properly, 
I could follow on that path of Billy Bean, of Brian Cashman, of Theo Epstein. Cool. And tell us about high school. I know you you played a couple of different sports in high school. Yes. I had played, obviously, softball and tennis. And then my twin sister, Annie, and I focused exclusively on golf once we got to high school. And we had several offers from programs like Georgetown, Yale, Carnegie Mellon, WashU, and St. Louis to continue our career. But my grandma, both of my parents, everyone had degrees from Northwestern. So the <laughs> unspoken understanding was if you're able to get in, you're going. And it was just, it was a phenomenal experience. I graduated in three years, but it was three of the best years of my life. I still am in touch with Professor Deborah Cohen, who's now the department chair of history. And she just came out with a book and I, I had sent her an email and she was just so delighted at everything that had happened. And I think she in particular was really influential because I remember I was in her office. We were talking about a paper I was writing on the Cubs of the 1930s and Hack Wilson. And I was outlining to her that I was in the running for a job at the league office. But I said to her, I don't know if I have the background or if I have the ability to handle some of the more quantitative or econ-based projects that they would probably throw at me. And I will never forget, Professor Cohen said to me, you know, like, flip that and don't say, I don't have those experiences or I don't have those capabilities as I don't yet have those capabilities. <laughs> I don't yet have those experiences. And that's actually stayed with me for a long time because I think you know, it could be very easy to fall into the trap of, oh, I can't do this rather than I may not have yet, but I am more than willing and more than capable of gaining those responsibilities and gaining those skill sets. So while you were still at Northwestern, there was a certain World Series in 2016, the, the Northsiders, the Cubs. Tell us about your, your involvement with that. Yes. So I planned the World Series trophy tour. I was working at the time for Culleton Strategies, which is the public relations strategy firm that handles all the media for the Ricketts family, the owners of the Cubs. And I remember my boss emailing me after game seven that Wednesday night in Cleveland. And he said, hey, Katie, we have a meeting at Wrigley on Monday. You know, here's the time. Can you make it? And so I obviously <laughs> moved mountains in order to <laughs> get to Clark and Addison and, and be at that meeting. And it was Mike Lafrano, who's the Cubs executive vice president and uh, general counsel for the team and people from government relations, marketing, corporate sponsorship, just a really eclectic mix. And I remember Mike said, this hasn't happened in 108 years. We know we want to celebrate it. We know that the Red Sox have done something similar in 2004 and 2007 in terms of bringing the trophy to the fans. We're really crazy busy with Cubs convention. Dennis, Katie, do you want to run with it? And Dennis, who's my boss at Color and Strategies, basically gave me carte blanche. And as a 19-year-old, I was put in charge. And so the trickiest dynamic, Renee, was still being a full-time college student and working with people who had full-time jobs. So they would schedule meetings at Thursday at 10 a.m. because it's normal time to schedule a meeting for right. anyone who <laughs> works in an office. But for me, I you know, would have a geology class or I would be in a stats class. And so I would have to work around that. And it was a really crazy three or four months, but so rewarding. And I think cemented my desire to work in baseball, to be able to see people from every generation, every walk of life, you know, be reduced to tears in many cases at the sight of this trophy. And I think it was so powerful and humbling to think that this was a tangible representation of where baseball family and life all come together and the confluence of those things and everything that happens in between. Pretty, pretty amazing experience, like you said, at age 19. Definitely. And I think 
to be able to be a part of that and to think that maybe someday I could not just plan the after party, but I could be part of the group that helps put together that championship team, I think was really exciting for me too. You know, I've seen the benefits that are accrued when you win a championship. Now, how do I help put a team or a franchise in a position to win? Right. So so the next step, you, you were still in school. Later that year, you got an opportunity for a baseball team in Cape Cod. Tell us how that came about. What you, were you doing at the time? You were still an undergraduate student. Yes. So Judy Walden Scarafile, who was the first female commissioner of the Cape Cod Baseball League, which is still the premier amateur collegiate summer circuit. She and I had stayed in touch. She had met me when I was probably around that, that money ball juncture in my life, 12 or 13. And I had said to her, you know, Judy, I had this experience um, this previous year with the Cubs. Obviously, it was more so on the business side. You know, my heart's in baseball operations and scouting and analytics. Is there a way I could work for a team this summer? And so she connected me with Tino D. Giovanni, who was the GM of the Hyannis Harbor Hooks. And I basically worked with him directly on everything from identifying players we would want on the team for the 2018 season, thinking about our coaching staff and how can we provide them with resources because on the Cape, you're working with guys from a host of programs, whether it's Minnesota or Alabama, even like maybe mid-level schools like South Alabama. So how do we get them on the same page for the three months and make sure that they are in a really good position when they're being seen by scouts? Uh, and so the one of the players that I recommended that we sign for 2018, Matthew Barefoot, actually ended up leading the league in batting average the following year, which was really cool to me and definitely validation that I was in the right place and that every once in a while, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Good. And and then how did you go from there to the, the MLB? Yes. There's an English professor at Northwestern, Bill Savage, who has written pretty extensively on baseball. And I never took a class at Bill's, but we had maintained a correspondence and he emailed me one day, this probably would have been October, 2017. And he said to me, I think you might be interested in this. And it was a link to the fellowship program. And it basically was an opportunity for women or people of color to have full-time jobs, either at the league office or with a team. And I originally only applied for the team program because I did not think I was qualified at the time for the commissioner's office. And then I received an email in January of 2018, kind of out of the blue. I think it was on like a Friday at maybe like eight or nine o'clock at night, asking if I was interested in applying for the league office role, working with Commissioner Manfred and Deputy Commissioner Dan Halem. And the first interview that I had was with Kim Ang, who at the time was an SVP at MLB and later became in 2020 the first female GM in Major League Baseball history and the first female GM across any of the main four sports, NFL, NBA, NHL, and NBA. Um, so that was really cool to be able to sit across from Kim and pick her brain, but also you know do a good enough job where she then passed me to subsequent rounds of the interviews. I was accepted on February 28th, 2018. I remember because it was the day after my 21st birthday <laughs> and I was in my sorority dorm room and I got an email saying that I had a letter of offer and the salary and everything listed right there. And I remember I called my mom and I was crying. I was just, it was such a dream come true. I, I couldn't believe it was happening. And I remember I said to her, you know, MLB, that was like really the only words that I could get out. And <laughs> she started consoling me on the phone. She said, oh, honey, it's okay. You went so far. 
you know, you should be so proud of everything that you did. And I said, no, 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 no. They, they chose me. They chose me. They chose me. And so then she started crying and <laughs> I called my dad and he was at a convention. So he was on a show floor. And when I told him he had a different reaction, he started dropping F-bombs and screaming. He was so, he was so excited. Like, this is amazing. You deserve it. And then uh, my twin sister, Annie, she was going to class. And so she like raced over to my sorority and ended up being late to class. And she said to me, so what does this mean? What comes next? And I said, well, I moved to New York and I don't know what happens from there. But but yeah, that was that was kind of the moment where I knew, OK, everything's everything's going to change. So you went to New York. This was a one year program. It was supposed to be three years. I was there for a year and a half. So from June of 2018 until the end of 2019. Part of the reason why it was expedited was because I knew that I wanted to work for a team. And my boss at the time, Chris Young, who's now the president of baseball operations for the Texas Rangers, he was really foundational and influential in helping me decide which team I should go to next and weigh the different offers and the different cultures. And so because of him, I really liked what the Reds could offer in terms of the exposure and the proximity to decision-making. And so it was a great experience. Spent 2020 and 21 season there, made the playoffs in 2020 in the shortened season. And we were really close to making the playoffs in 2021, but the Cardinals went on a win streak that we just couldn't, we couldn't keep up with. And then just to backtrack for a moment, the Reds, the Cincinnati Reds, your your role there was a operations analyst. So what did the responsibilities entail? Definitely. So again, back to Moneyball, it was very similar to the Jonah <laughs> Hill character. So who should we sign? What should we pay them and where should they play? And I think having the exposure to the amateur draft, a salary arbitration was a huge component of what I had done at MLB. So retain that while also recommending and setting the salaries for players who had less than three years of major league service. So overseeing that process, heavily involved in code review on the research and development side. And I think that was where I think I truly became a utility player in that because I was working on international scouting or I had pro coverage of the Fort Wayne Tin Caps, the Padres high A affiliate. You know, I really was versatile and I think it allowed me to not only impact the front office, but also to grow a lot at what I think was a very important and crucial time in my career development. So now after the 2021 season, you took a little bit of a a side path outside of baseball, spent some time at, at Google. So what did you do there and how did you end up there? Yes. So I was wrapping up my MBA at the University of Chicago, which I completed this June. And I think Booth allowed me the space to ruminate and consider that there might be other industries where I could apply my skill sets. And there really were only a handful of companies that stood out. And I think Google was one of them because everything that is written about them, everything that is said about them in terms of the way employees are treated, the way that culture is strategically built is true. And so it was through the University of Chicago that I got in touch with the global strategy team and so joined them in right after the regular season ended with the Reds. So in October of 2021, and it was a really high performing group. I focused on Google Workspace. So that's everything from Gmail, Gchat, Google Drive, some of those tools, thinking about how can we bring those to small businesses, large corporations, whether it's like Panera, Pepsi, et cetera. And this was Google in Chicago, right? 
the office I was based out of was in Chicago, but the team was actually remote and global. So we had some folks out in Mountain View, out in California, in Texas, in New York. And I like that too. I think being able to understand Google as an organism and have people in different places allowed me to kind of get my feet wet and get acclimated to what is this very large entity. And were you missing the baseball world at this time or were you just so wrapped up in what you were doing at Google that you didn't think about it? Oh, definitely. And not to just cite different instances where I've cried during my career, but <laughs> I remember when I called the Reds, tell them, to tell them that I was going to leave, you know, I, I broke down in tears because it's not like they had fired me. It's not mm -hmm. like there weren't other opportunities that I could have pursued in baseball. The day I left Cincinnati, I had two teams reach out to me with basically job offers. And so I felt like I was rejecting a part of myself by leaving. And so that was really tough because I do think baseball is in my soul and I think it's a part of who I am. So, yes, it was always on the forefront of my mind. And I think it's part of the reason why when the Red Sox came to me with the opportunity to be a coach, I was so receptive to it because I knew that deep down I would always find my way back to the game. I just didn't anticipate it being so soon. And what was your kind of game plan in your mind for, for going back into baseball? I figured I'd probably spend maybe half a decade at Google really get a robust understanding of how they optimize their resources, whether it be human capital or just their ability to scale. And then I would come back to baseball, maybe in like a director or an assistant GM role. Obviously, it, it ended up being two months rather than five years, but it's, I do think it worked out. And I do think that there was a plan all along. And tell me about this notebook that you put together. And I don't know if it was this time or earlier about all the possible job openings in, in baseball. Oh, yes, definitely. For someone who I think can be labeled as a quant, I can be very old school and traditional. <laughs> so I have a slew of notebooks. But every time I've gone about a job search or there's been a point where I've considered switching employers, I normally will write out the different team names. So when I was at Northwestern and I was looking at obviously the opportunity in New York, but also speaking with other teams like the Twins, the Cubs, I would have a notebook and I would diagram out the different opportunities and the different teams who I'd spoken to the role. And at the time at Northwestern, I was really willing to do just about anything to get into the game. So whether it was, you know, an internship in marketing, or if it was something that maybe didn't exactly align with my long-term goals, I felt like if I could just get in and make an impact and prove myself then I would be able to stick around and I would be able to become a meaningful part of the front office. Didn't you say you wouldn't even been willing to work as a mascot? If Definitely, yeah. <laughs> I'm a team player, whatever the team needs. <laughs> That's great. And so now let's go to November 2021. You, you got a call that turned out to be quite pivotal. From, from the Red Sox. Yes. I remember actually I was home. There were a series of interviews, but one of the bigger group Zooms with a host of people from player development, I was back home and there's actually a Derek Jeter fathead in my childhood bedroom because that 2009 Yankees team, I love Jeter's biography, The Life You Imagine. And so I didn't want to take it in front of the, the Jeter fat head. So I'm <laughs> taking it in my parents' kitchen because, and I told them during the interview, I said, I didn't want to get points taken off for bad fit or bad feel, <laughs> which they love. But <clears throat> got the call right around Christmas. And honestly, Renee, like accepted it on the spot. I knew that it was something that I would spend the rest of my life thinking about if I didn't take. 
And I knew that as a woman, like the position was bigger than baseball in many respects. So it was, it was an easy choice and I'm glad that I made it. And that call was from who? It was from Molly Harris, who is the HR specialist who oversees baseball ops hiring at the Red Sox. Were you in tears after or during the call? After the call, yeah, well, of okay. course. Renee, you, you know the stat line. Of course, I was in tears. <laughs> Maybe you call first to to tell the news. And tell us about the the job that you accepted. What What was the offer? Yes. So it was to be a development coach. I did not know which affiliate I would be at since I, the Red Sox are my employer. They really had the discretion and the ability to send me just about anywhere. I had a preference for the upper levels because I wanted to be able to work with players who had a mix of experiences. So whether it was top prospects or guys with big league service time. So my preference would have been Portland or Worcester. And the role itself, you know, I do everything from coaching first base. I'm heavily involved and oversee our pitch design at the AA level. So thinking about if a pitcher throws a four-seam fastball, a two-seam, a change-up, a curveball, which of those can we improve upon? Which should we maybe scrap because their their efficacy isn't really that high? And then on the hitting side, thinking about tendencies in terms of where maybe a guy is, you know, swinging with his arms and not being rotational enough or Maybe he's tilted over and he's hunching. So instead of crunching, like you see the best hitters do, like Anthony Rizzo or Aaron Judge, he's, you know, getting on the side and he almost looks like he's, you know, a slash line. So things like that, again, it's very personalized and individualized to what the player needs and wants. So if he's not necessarily receptive to data or quantitative information, there are still ways that I think you can impact him and give him information that he needs, even if it's not presented in the same way that you would for someone who is more driven by the numbers. And Katie, you said you said yes right away. You didn't have to take a breath. <laughs> no, I jumped in. Great. And and who did you call to tell first? Your your parents? Uh, it was the usual cast of characters. So my mom, my sister, my dad. Was there a sense of disbelief after you accepted that? Well, a lot of people couldn't believe, Renee, that I left Google. And I think I've still gotten that and I probably will for the rest of my career. I think that, you know, people normally get hung up on like the financial discrepancy and that, you know, Google pays very well and you're surrounded by incredibly bright people. And so it's an environment that few self-select out of. But I think if anyone really knows me, they know that I, I would say yes instantly, that there, there really would never be an alternative. Because as I said earlier, you know, my heart's always been in the game and I felt like there was more that I had to give to the sport. Great. Okay. Well, we're now going to take a short break and then we'll continue with this exciting journey. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. I think that if I could have any way of being a little bit inspiring or a role model, that's what I want. Like if someday someone would come up to me and say, you know, I heard about your role or someone passed me along something that you wrote or said and it, it spurred me to do X, that would be incredibly rewarding for me. 
We are back speaking to Katie Crow, a development coach with the Boston Red Sox based in Portland. Katie, you were just telling us about, you know, accepting that exciting job opportunity. How did things go from there? So after that, there was not a lot of lag time in that we had a winter warm-up camp in January for some of our top prospects. So smaller setting, we actually referred to it as spring training for spring training in that it was at the Fort Myers Complex in Florida, but it wasn't the full circus that spring training can normally be. And it was still the major league lockout. So there definitely was a priority and an emphasis on the player development side. So got to know a lot of guys, many of whom are now with the Sea Dogs, which was awesome, I think, to initially lay the foundation for those relationships and get acclimated to the assets that the Red Sox had in the front office, which look similar in many respects in terms of the reports that we had at the Cincinnati Reds, but also like making sure messaging that there was continuity from the bottom level all the way up through the major leagues. So getting to know the pitching coach, Dave Bush, who's a Portland native. Um, you know, meeting Alex Cora, I think like all of that could happen more organically because there wasn't the, you know, the media wasn't nearly as scrutinous or there weren't as many people around. You really had the opportunity to have one-on-one conversations, which was awesome. Now you did get, you know, a lot of media attention, you know, as the first woman in in this role. When did it help hit you how significant it was to, you know, get this opportunity and step into this role? So Alex Fire with the Boston Globe, he tweeted that I had been hired and I didn't know about it because I'm not on Twitter, but a bunch of people kept sending me screenshots and messages and it was, it was crazy. It was, you know, sorority sisters of mine. It was people I had worked with at MLB. It was people that I had known since I was five years old who (laughs) knew this was a dream of mine and knew I had worked in baseball previously. You know, this is my sixth year in the game. But I think they recognized that this was unique in that it was a uniform position. It was being on the field. This represented kind of something seismic. And so I think after Alex's tweet, that's when it really hit me. And yes, there was a lot of attention, which I didn't necessarily expect. I figured, you know, there might be one or two articles just writing about the changing face of baseball and the way that women are being accepted and put in more high profile positions. But it definitely was an onslaught. (laughs) I think I did a lot more interviews than I probably would have ever expected, but I've always had the mindset that, you know, those interviews are not for me. Like those interviews are for a seven-year-old girl who lives in Cape Elizabeth, who is the only one on her baseball team. Or the interview is for a woman who's debating whether or not she wants to go to law school and she's scared of making that jump. I think that if I could have any way of being a little bit inspiring or a role model, that's what I want. Like if someday someone would come up to me and say, you know, I heard about your role or someone passed me along something that you wrote or said, and it, it spurred me to do X, that would be incredibly rewarding for me. Great. And and I think you already, you know, have a, a growing fan club of, of young girls who come up to you in games or after games and ask for your autograph for your picture. Yes, that's been amazing. I think to be able to chat with them and hear their stories. And, you know, I never went to a baseball game and there was a woman on the field. And now they're growing up in a world where you can have a female baseball coach, you can have a female vice president. I think that, you know, we are slowly but surely chipping away and making change. And, you know, to reference Billie Jean King again, she always speaks about like it's making change, you know, discussing verbs again, like it, it can be incremental at times. And then suddenly there can be waterfall moments, but 
like it, it's a long road. And I think as someone, again, with a short attention span, I can want things to be instantaneous sometimes. And I think you have to take a step back and recognize that if you want it to be meaningful and long lasting, it may not be immediate, but that's not a reason not to fight the battle. That's great. What, what, what was it like the first time you put on that uniform and, and were on the field? It was really powerful. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot that I carry with me when I step onto the field in terms of the people who have supported me, the people who have doubted me, who have fueled me. You know, I think for for everyone who has believed in me, there definitely have been people who have been obstructionist or who have thought that women don't belong in the sport. And I think to be able to wear that uniform is in many ways, um, you know, a reminder that anything is possible. And again, like like my parents taught me, like never accept someone else's arbitrary definition of what you can do because only you can define it. And how much time do you spend on the field versus how much time, you know, at the computer, you know, doing all the analytics stuff for back of a, lack of a better description? Definitely. I think, you know, sometimes I'm typing away on my computer, writing code, and then other times I've got a mitt in my hand, you know, I'm playing catch with the pitchers. So it's probably pretty equitable overall. And I think that it's important to step away from your laptop if you can. And it might just be having conversations with guys, you know, where we eat and talking about with Nick Nortcutt different things in Cincinnati or with Nico Cavadas, what the Bears are going to do this weekend. So I think when you can have the, that one-on-one time and, and make those connections with people, then when you are talking about the data or the analytics stuff, I think that they are far more receptive because they, they have that rapport with you and they know that your, your intentions are in the right place. And how long did it take to establish that rapport? I mean, you were you were an outsider, you know, coming in the, the first woman, you know, coaching all men. Definitely. And I think it came about gradually, which when I was at MLB, when I was at the Reds, you know, my coworkers and I were instantly close. You know, in New York, we would go to games together on weekends. We would go to each other's apartments in Cincinnati. Same situation. I think since it was my first season coaching, I really had to ease into it. And I had to think about, you know, if I were in their shoes, how would I, how would I react to any new coach coming in? And I think the common language that we always had was baseball. So maybe even if I didn't know a lot about a player or if I didn't necessarily think that we had a lot of similar interests or experiences, you know, the one thing that we could talk about is our love of the game. And we could talk about tendencies that he has or things that he encountered last year. So I think that is a great equalizer. And will always allow me to connect with a player because we do have that mutual understanding and love of the game. And, you know, have you bonded closely with Tiedemann, you know, the, the announcer, you know, as, as a fellow, fellow woman? Oh my gosh, yes. I was the absolute <laughs> best. She's extraordinarily talented. And I think it's tough to, to talk about her as a broadcaster because she's like, you want to highlight how amazing she is in the booth. But then also I want to talk about what a great human being she is. <laughs> so I think it's it's been great to have her and being on the road and traveling together. You know, she knows baseball. She's really bright. She's incredibly articulate. I often have to watch our games afterwards based on cleaning different data files or looking through certain at bats with players. And so it, it's a treat to be able to hear Emma because when I'm in the dugout, I can't. And so right. I'll text her, or I'll compliment her and I'll say, oh, that was a great home run call or, oh, I loved what you said about Dave Hamilton stealing his, you know, 60th bag. <laughs> so is it, I can't wait for her to be in a major league booth someday. Like it, it's just a matter of time with her. She's just too talented not to be. 
and the the bus rides. I think were, were you doing your homework for your MBA on on some of those road trips? Yes, I think our longest one was from Richmond, Virginia, back to Portland, which was sixteen or seventeen hours. But the bus rides actually were a great respite because I was able to do problem sets or case studies or get ahead on readings. So yes, when I was still learning my MBAs, that was my designated homework time. And and how do you like living in Portland? It's obviously a, a lot smaller than than Chicago. Portland's been great. And I think the people here have been super welcoming, awesome restaurant scene. I love seafood. And I've really been able, I think, to get to know the area, which has been great. I think anyone really would tell you that the Sea Dogs are one of the best minor league affiliates across the industry. So I feel very fortunate that I ended up here. Katie, we're recording this in early September. It's nearing the the end of the, the regular season. We're not going to make any predictions about what happened, but how would you sum up your first season with the, the Sea Dogs, the affiliate of the Red Sox? It's been a wonderful experience. And I think the greatest success stories that I can point to are Brian Bayo making his major league debut, Brian Mata moving up, Brandon Walter, a lot of pitchers and hitters as well, who I think were able to gain insights this year in Portland that I hope they can deploy and leverage at higher levels. And hopefully there were moments or experiences or things that they learned this year that they then can continue to build on to have strong careers. I think more than a win-loss record, that is what everyone at the Red Sox wants for their minor league players, that they have experiences and are exposed to things that allow them to reach their full potential. And Anything that that you've learned, you know, added to your baseball knowledge or learned about yourself this this year? Some of the greatest takeaways revolve around the strategy of the game. And when you're mixing or deploying people in different situations, really making sure that you're putting them in a position to succeed. And also thinking through, you know, when you are designing a pitch or when you are thinking about how you should go about a certain situation you know, recognizing the intangibles, which I think is kind of an ironic lesson, you know, coming from someone who technically falls in the quantitative realm. But I think more than ever this year, I've seen where drive, determination, tenacity can influence how you perform between the lines. And that's something that we haven't yet been able to capture with a model or capture with a metric, but by no means should we disregard it. I think it's going to be one of the things that I will cite moving forward for the rest of my career, having been in the clubhouse and having been in the trenches and seeing how players perform under pressure and how they either rise or they fall with face with adversity. So, so Katie, what will you do in the off season? Still up in the air. I think we're going to have a camp at our complex in Fort Myers. So might sneak down to that. I think this will be my first season as a coach in the offseason. So typically at the Reds or at MLB, our offseason was the busiest time because we were putting together the team for the upcoming year. We had salary arbitration cases. So I think I'm wading into unknown waters, but I'm excited <laughs> for what comes next. And I think that this past year has shown me that, you know, I think God has a plan and that there there are things that have a way of working out. And so I'm I'm looking forward to what the next several months hold. And taking a longer term perspective, you know, where where do you see your career going long term? What are your aspirations? I would love to follow in Kim's footsteps and be a GM someday. I think that there 
are a lot of unique opportunities that come from leading a front office. I also would be really receptive to returning to MLB and being commissioner and being custodian of the sport and shepherding it for the next generation of fans, players, and front office personnel. Lofty goals. And... You shared some of this already, but advice to, you know, young girls with an interest in working in baseball or other pro sports, what would you tell them today? I think one of the key messages that I would hone in on is the importance of pursuing your passion. And if there is noise or if there are doubters, if there are people who think that it's not your time or it's not your place, don't don't let them determine what you believe and what you know is possible. So I think really being tenacious and really focusing on what you love and making sure that you're prepared when the opportunity presents itself. And all you need is one person. All you need is one person to believe in you. All you need is one person to give you the opportunity. And once you get it, run with it and don't look back. This has been a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the MainBiz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.